How many of you have a cell phone? I'm sure almost all of us. Yeah. <laughs> we could do the flame, the, the light. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, a genius device. It's a wonderful piece of technology. Uh, it serves us well, as most things in life. Uh, it's a great servant. It's a terrible master, you know. Um, but uh, I, I enjoy the cell phone. It, has, it brings a lot of benefits to us, uh, communication and all sorts of things. But we also know that there's a dark side to these things as well. And uh, we know that we can get pretty attached to our phones. Pretty, I'll even use the word, addicted. How many of you, are just a moment of confession, you're in church, so please don't lie. Uh, but how many of you here would say that you are mildly to greatly addicted to your cell phone? Any? Yeah, okay. Thank you for your honesty. The rest of you either are not telling the truth or didn't hear the question. But so here are some signs that you might be addicted to your cell phone. You answer yes to some of these questions. First of all, do you feel a sense of panic if you don't know where your phone is for more than 60 seconds? Anyone here just in a state of panic? Do you frequently text your spouse instead of getting up and walking 10 feet into the next room where they're sitting? Anyone do that? Yeah. I've done that more than once. Uh, for you, is the worst form of to torture when the flight attendant makes you turn your cell phone in airplane mode for, for a four-hour flight, and that is just torture for you. Here's another question. Do you feel bummed out if you forget to bring your cell phone into the washroom with you? Anyone? <laughs> Last question is this. Do you find yourself secretly replying to a text at times when you know you're not supposed to, such as in class or at a family dinner or during a sermon? <laughs> I know all of you would be saying, oh, I'm taking notes, Pastor. No, you're not. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, uh, some time ago, my son Jonah, uh, he was out at a restaurant here in town. I can't remember which one. And uh, he was with friends of his, a number of them at the table, and before the meal uh, got there, they all decided to take their cell phones out of their pocket and put it in the middle of the table, and they weren't going to touch their cell phones for the entire meal. And so they did that, and they just talked and had a great time together, and then they got up to pay the bill, and the waiter or waitress said to them, uh, your bill has already been paid. There was a lady who just left. She paid your bill, but I'm so happy that you guys put your cell phones in the middle of the table. Isn't that great? It's just uncommon in our day. We're stuck in front of our phones. But all that to say, cell phones are, you know, they're, they're a great tool. Like I said, they're a great for terrible master. But I think part of the reason that we are so attached to these things and part of the reason we enjoy them so much, I mean, part of the reason for our addiction may be because of boredom. It may be because of escapism. We're just trying to escape uh, whatever it is in our life that we just don't want to think about, that kind of thing. I'm sure that there's a lot of reasons that we can get addicted to our cell phones. But I think behind a lot of that, behind our attachment to these things, I think is a desire for relationship. It's a desire to connect with people. It's a desire to be known by other people. It's a desire to know other people and what's happening in their lives. There is, I believe, a deep desire inside of us for connection, for relationship. And... Uh, technology is helpful and useful for that, but if we want relationships that are more than skin deep, that go past the surface, that go past sort of the varnished veneer of 
our lives that we often present to people, those relationships we understand are often difficult. They take work. They're not easy to have deep, meaningful relationships that are built on honesty, that are built on vulnerability, that are built on forgiveness and grace. Those kinds of relationships are worth it. Those kinds of relationships are amazing in life, but they're not easy, are they? We all know this to be true. They require more than a quick hello. They require more than a quick text or a smile and a wave and, hey, how are you doing? They require love. Not a feeling of love, but they require an investment of love in those relationships. This morning we're wrapping up a series called Becoming Healthy. And over the past while we've been looking at healthy or how do we have healthy relationships in our lives. It's all been, been all about relationships. We've talked about a healthy friendship. We've talked about healthy conflict in relationships. Because conflict is inevitable in our relationships. And so how do we do that in a way that is healthy? that actually brings about life and not death in a relationship. We've talked about healthy boundaries. What does that look like in our relationships? The necessity of boundaries sometimes, and how can we do that in a healthy way? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about healthy marriages, and last Sunday, we talked about healthy sexuality. All of these things are part of our relationships. And this morning, I just want to wrap up this series. Uh, You know that Jesus spent a lot of time talking about relationships. A lot of his teaching was focused on how we treat one another, how we interact with one another. He spent a lot of time talking about that we are to love and not hate, that we are to forgive and not retaliate, that we are to be a people of generosity and not greed, that we are to be a people of grace and not judgment, that we are to be a people of honesty and not deception or manipulation. He called us in our friendship, in our marriages, in our relationships, with mild acquaintances, with strangers, and with people we know well, to invest in those people in love. Even people that don't, we don't get along with. Jesus said, invest in them. Love them. It's a high calling of Jesus. Jesus said, this is how I want you to be known, by how you treat one another, by how you love one another. And the earlier followers of Jesus Christ, they understood this. They understood Jesus' high calling of love, what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. The Apostle John in the book of uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, he wrote this. He said, Whoever does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. The Apostle Paul under, also understood this calling of love on our lives as followers of Jesus Christ, as was written in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that Jennifer just read for us. And I'd like to just take a few minutes and go over this uh, probably a familiar chapter to most of you here this morning, but just to understand what Paul is talking about and then try to apply it with the Holy Spirit's help to each of our lives. So if you have your Bibles, you can grab your Bible. We're just going to walk through this passage uh, a few verses at a time. As you're finding 1 Corinthians chapter 13, let me just tell you very briefly what Paul's overall uh, concern or his overall motivation in this passage is. Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, um, and in the Corinthian church, as you read through the book of Corinthians, you realize that uh, they, they were a church who got a lot of things right, but they also got a lot of things wrong. And that's encouraging to me as I read the book of uh, Corinthians, because we also are a church who I believe get a lot of things right, but we don't always get it right. Sometimes we get things wrong, and so we're not the only church uh, who, are, uh, who are like that. But Paul was writing to the Corinthians. And he was writing to a group of people that in many ways they were a very gifted group of people. 
uh, naturally, but also spiritual gifts. And they cherished, they prized certain spiritual gifts. They prized spiritual gifts like prophecy, uh, spiritual gifts like wisdom, or the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues, the Bible talks about, is a uh, primarily a prayer language that God enables someone uh, to have in order to talk to God uh, in, in a language that is not your own. And the Apostle Paul says that when that, uh, when that gift is used in the context of corporate worship, it is appropriate, but it should be accompanied by uh, an interpretation so that the rest of people, the rest of the people present know what is being said, so that it's beneficial for the whole and not just for the individual. And so prophecy is simply declaring the mind of God in certain situations. It's not just about the future, it's about now, and it's a gift that God gives people. The gift of healing, all of these gifts that the Corinthians had, that they cherished, they prized themselves in having these gifts. And Paul says these gifts are good things, but they need to be put in their proper place. And so Paul is ranking sort of all of these gifts compared to one thing overall, and that's love. And so what Paul says in verses uh, 1 to 3 is, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul's saying, you know, you can speak in tongues, you can have all of this stuff, but if you don't love well, you're, you're kind of just this noise. That it just doesn't really mean very much. Paul says in verse 2, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, but I, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing, Paul says. It's quite a statement. And the last thing Paul says, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. So if you read 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, Paul affirms all of these gifts, but Paul is saying if they're not accompanied by love, in fact, if love doesn't superintend all of these gifts, if they're not done in love, then all of these things mean nothing. John Ortberg says, he puts 1 Corinthians chapter 13 into a math equation. He says, Everything minus love equals nothing. Everything minus love equals nothing. And that's the emphasis that Paul puts on love here. Uh, In my office, I have uh, this certificate that normally hangs there. It's been hanging there ever since I started here. And this is my certificate of ordination. And uh, it says that in June of 2000 that I was ordained uh, to the Christian uh, Christian ministry in the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And uh, it is a process that uh, all licensed workers in the Alliance go through, and it's a process of study and uh, doing, reading books and writing papers. And then finally, uh, I sat before a committee of eight people and had them ask me questions of all sort, theology, Bible knowledge, personal questions for about an hour and a half. Corley was present with me, and I passed, and I got ordained with the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And uh, I became a reverend with the Christian Missionary Alliance. Now, the reason I bring this up is because this hangs in my office. And, oh, by the way, as an aside, uh, just in case you didn't know, Pastor Jason is right now in the process of going through his ordination. And so he's studying and he's reading books and he's getting ready for the interview that will take place next uh, June. So you can be praying for him as he has all of that to do on top of his regular work. But I bring this up to say that this hangs in my office. But I don't hang it in my office as a prize. I don't hang it in my office as a trophy. No one has ever walked in my office, looked at my certificate of ordination and said, oh, I'm on holy ground. I better take off my shoes. Like, that has never happened once. Okay? 
The reason I hang it in my office, at least when I look at my certificate of ordination, it's not pride that comes to my mind. It's actually a reminder to me that God has called me to Christian ministry. That I'm called by God to Christian ministry. And what does that mean primarily for me? As I look at at this uh, ordination certificate from time to time in my office, it honestly is a reminder that I'm called to love the church. That I'm first and foremost called as a minister of the church to serve and to love God's people in the church. Of course, we're all called to that. But it's this thing on my wall that I'm reminded of each time I look at it, that the most important thing that I can do in my vocation, in my calling, and as a follower of Jesus Christ, is to love. It's to serve the the people that God has given me a chance to minister to in the church that I am in. Verses 4 to 7, Paul goes on to describe what love is. Paul says this, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Often we'll hear these verses read at a wedding, and that is appropriate to read them at a wedding, but we just need to understand that they weren't uh, written for married couples in particular. They were written for you. They were written for me. They were written for the church and how we are to relate to one another. But how many of you, you read through this description of love, and it's, it's easy to feel overwhelmed, isn't it? How many of you could actually insert your name here for the word love? Like, Jeremy is patient. Jeremy is kind. Jeremy is never rude. Jeremy is never, you know, Jeremy is patient. Well, yeah, sometimes, but not always, right? This isn't a description of how I act all the time. It's a description of God, because God is love. This is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus calls us to be. And this isn't meant to overwhelm us. It's not meant to rack us with guilt. It's meant to inspire us to become more and more, with God's help, like his son, Jesus. To become more and more like love. More and more patient. More and more kind. And all of these things. Verse 7 says, love... uh, uh, Other translations, it says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. When I think of this description of love, I think of a lot of examples that I've seen from over, over the years. I think of Del Sadler, who uh, you wouldn't know, but in the church that I grew up in, he was one of, the, um, one of the people that we looked up to as mature in his faith. Del knew his Bible inside and out. He had a Bible, like really thick Bible, and he knew that Bible inside and out. Uh, He was a mature man in his walk with the Lord. But I came to understand that Dell got 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He knew how to love people. He treated people with kindness. He looked at people and treated them with grace. He didn't look down on people. Dell's wife, Elizabeth, uh, from as as, uh, long back as I can remember, she developed Alzheimer's. And for most of the time that I was in the church growing up with Dell, his wife was not with us. She was in a care home. And Dell was faithful to his wife. In a time where a lot of men, when their wives uh, develop sickness, a lot of men just leave. A lot of men pack it in because they can't handle it. Dell didn't do that. Every single day, he went to the care home, and he was with his wife, and he fed her, and he spent time with her, and he read to her, and he talked with her, 
and he prayed with her every single day. He loved his wife, and he loved people in the church. Dell got this. He was an example to me, many other examples. I think most of us have been on the receiving end of this kind of love or parts of this kind of love that the Apostle Paul talks to us about. I think a lot of us have been on the receiving end of someone's generosity and kindness, where they just show up in your life on your doorstep one day, and they offer something to you that you didn't deserve, but it's just this grace, it's just this kindness, and it's overwhelming. A lot of us have been on the receiving end of forgiveness, where we have said something dumb to someone, or we've done something hurtful to someone, and instead of being instead of retaliating, they come to us with forgiveness and grace. And it's just humbling. This is the kind of love that the Apostle Paul calls us to. And then he says this, in verse 8, he says, love never fails. Another way this could be translated is love never ends. And in this next paragraph, what Paul is talking about is he's contrasting what is now and what will come. That there are these things that are present now, but one day those things will no longer be here. And he ends this section by saying this, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these, Paul says, is love. Why is love the greatest? I mean, faith and hope, those are hallmarks of the, you know, the Christian faith. But why is love greater than faith and hope? And I think what Paul is saying is that faith, hope, and love are great. But one day, only one of these things will remain. When Jesus returns and we are with God in heaven, there will no longer be need. There will no longer, we will no longer need faith. Because faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And there is coming a day when we will no longer have to hope for what is coming. We will be there with God. And we will no longer wonder what it's like to see God because we will see him face to face. But love remains always. And Paul calls us to love. So, friends, as you think about your friendships, your schoolmates, the person you run into at the coffee shop, your husband or your wife or your neighbor, the people you worship with at church, the person in your small group, God is calling you to love them. And you might be thinking to yourself, but you don't know what this person does again and again and again. You don't know what this person says to me again and again and again. You don't know how this person ignores me. You don't know how this person, you know, I'm supposed to be patient to them. Well, maybe if they showed me an ounce of patience themselves, it would be easier. And here's the thing about the scriptures. The scripture never calls us to show love to people that our love for people is to be proportionate to the love that we have been shown by other people. That's not the call of Scripture. The world calls us to that. Human nature tells us that, but not the Bible. And there's two important words in your New Testament that you need to pay attention to that get written over and over and over again. And these two words are this, just as. Just as. Remember those words, and when you see them, you will see things like, we are to love just as Christ has loved us. We are to forgive just as God has forgiven us. We are to treat others with kindness, not based on how they treat us, but just as God has treated us with kindness. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be a disciple. It's interesting that in in the scriptures, the believers in Jesus Christ were known as disciples. I say the word Christian, and in our society, if I say the word Christian, it can mean all sorts of things. It can mean, to some people, born again. It can mean, to some people, a religious person, someone who follows certain rules. It can mean someone who goes to church. It can mean 
uh, a right-wing conservative in the, in the political realm. It can mean all sorts of things, the name Christian. But the believers weren't first known as Christians. They were known as disciples. And a disciple is simply a follower of Jesus, one who decides ahead of time, as Jesus does, so I will do. That Jesus says that we are to do certain things and live certain ways, and I decide ahead of time that I'm going to do it Jesus' way. Andy Stanley talks about this, and he says that a follower, a disciple of Jesus, is someone who asks questions all the time. Questions like, Jesus, I'm trying to make a decision here. How would you handle it? Okay, then that's what I'll do. Jesus, how would you respond to this person? Okay, that's how I'll respond. Jesus, what would you do if you were me? Well, then that's how I'll do it, Jesus. Jesus, how would you manage this relationship? Well, then that's how I would do it. That's a disciple in Jesus. Someone who decides ahead of time that no matter what the question is, my answer is going to be, yes, Jesus. If that's how you say I'm to manage my relationships, then that's what I will do. And Jesus said this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Everyone will know that you are my disciple, that you are modeling your life after me. Everyone will know that you are my disciple if you love one another. So in your relationship with your neighbor, with your wife, with the person at school, with your son or your daughter, with the person that you're sitting near here in uh, this church this morning, I want to ask you a question. What does love require? What is Jesus asking of you in that relationship so that that relationship can become more healthy and more God-honoring? What does love require of you? As we've been talking about friendship, we've been talking about conflict, forgiveness, we've been talking about marriages and all sorts of relationships. What has God been talking to you about? The Apostle Paul, at the end of Corinthians, as if he hasn't given us enough of a challenge, he ends the book of Corinthians in verse 14, or close to the end, and he says these words. He says, do everything in love. It's like, Paul, why did you have to say that? You know, I would have much preferred it if Paul said, do most things in love. Because okay? I can do that. I can do most things, I think, in love. But do everything in love? It's a high calling. But with God's help, that's what he calls us. So I want to ask you again, what does love require of you? What is God calling you to these days? With God's help, by the help of his Holy Spirit, is he asking you to have a conversation with someone that maybe you haven't talked to in a long time? Is he asking you to move towards someone who is in need with kindness and goodness and grace? Is he asking you to pick up the phone, to write a letter, to forgive to start communicating with your husband or your wife so that that relationship might become more healthy. To start making decisions in the area of dating and sexuality so that that area of your life will become more helpful. What is God asking of you these days? What does love require? And so I want to call us to respond this morning. And I want to simply ask you that if there's something in your life that God is calling you to, uh, perhaps it's a relationship that needs work, Perhaps it's a relationship where it's not entirely healthy and you don't know exactly what to do right now and you need God's help. It's a decision in a relationship that you need to make. Uh, I don't know what that is for you, but I want to call you to come forward and I want to pray for you. And by coming forward, I'm just asking you to acknowledge your need for God's help and your need to make a decision in whatever it is the relationship 
that it is in your life that you know that you need to do. So I want to ask that you would bow your heads. And um, I want to pray for you. And if you, if you, if God is uh, nudging you and tapping you on the shoulder and calling you to respond in a particular relationship in your life, you know that he is asking this of you. And just come forward as a sign of your faith, as a sign of that I want to do what you are calling me to do. And then I want to pray over you. I'll just give you a couple of minutes. Jesus, you call us to the way of love. Jesus, you have modeled this time and time again for us. Lord, I don't know what needs are being represented by those who are standing, but you know their hearts, you know the desires of their hearts. And you know what is needed in that relationship that is represented. Father, I pray that you would bring healing that is